எல்லார்க்குள்ளேயும் ரெண்டு உயிர் எல்லார் தலைக்குள்ளேயும் ரெண்டு குரல் ரெண்டு அறிவு ஒரு உலகில் கண்மூடினால் மறுவுலகில் கண் திறப்போம் அந்த உலகில் மூச்சு இருந்தாலும் பயம் மூச்சு நின்றாலும் பயம் Welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike. Joining me as always, it's Mr. Venom. What's up, Venom? Greetings and salutations, paranormal YouTubers. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, Mike. And actually, speaking of paranormal YouTubers, it's something that I actually really, really enjoy. I actually watch a lot of those channels. So this movie kind of hits home this week. <laughs> All right, cool. Interesting. I, I had no idea that you partook in... And that stuff online, so uh, maybe at the end, if you remember, you can recommend a couple good ones. Um, all right, also with us, it's Don and Ellie. What's up, Don? Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. All right, well, we uh, had another week off from the theater, so we um, were searching around VOD. There wasn't a ton that released this past week, but one that was on Netflix, and it's, I believe it's, the country of origin is India, so Indian horror, uh, supernatural, uh, listed as a horror thriller, clocks in at just under two hours, um, and it's called, well, the pronunciation is Asvins, 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 it's Asvins, Asvins, yeah, Okay. Pretend it's A-S-H. It would be pronounced Ashvins. <laughs> All right. There you go. Ashvins. Uh, if you look it up, though, uh, don't have, don't put the H in there for anyone that's going to look yeah. into it. But uh, All right. And the synopsis off IMDb, a group of YouTubers who accidentally unleash a 1,500-year-old evil that crosses over from the realm of darkness to the human world. Uh it sounds like there should be a second half of that sentence, but I guess I'll just leave it at that. It doesn't say... Okay. I, yeah, I get... I, okay. Yeah, that's the synopsis that IMDb has. I didn't have time to read it ahead of time, so I kind of like read it and tried to make sense of it on the fly. But uh, that somewhat kind of sets it up, though. Even with a bad sentence structure, you still get the general idea. So we'll start with our general thoughts on this one, like always. So I'll kick it to Venom. What were your thoughts on Ashvin's? Oh, my friends, I fucking love this movie. I absolutely adored almost every second of this film. I 
I always like when Indian or Pakistani filmmakers utilize their own country's mythology when making horror films. Uh, there have been plenty of examples of that in the past, and this one is just another one to add to the pile. I, Even though this movie's two hours, I absolutely was riveted throughout the entire thing. There's so much to like about this movie. First and foremost, this score. This score is fucking stellar. I absolutely loved it. One of the closest things that it reminded me of was The Shining. It had a lot of elements of The Shining where um, where you would hear like a moaning voice in the score. And at times, especially when it's a first-time watch, you're not 100% sure if the ghostly moans are actually happening in the house or if they're part of the score. Obviously, if the actors on screen don't react to it, then, you know, it's part of the score. But I, yeah, I had a great, great time with the score. This cinematography, uh, again, absolutely stellar, gorgeous. Uh, the majority of this film, if not the entirety of this film, is shot on a small island that's connected by a sandbar to the mainland. But during high tide at night, that sandbar is gone. It's underwater. So basically, you know, it, it becomes a, an actual enclosed island that you'd have to swim off of to get out of. So I like that um, that, that kind of element of isolation, you know, a lot of times with haunted house movies or, you know, move, supernatural movies in, in general, you know, filmmakers try to give us a reason why they don't just get the fuck out of the house or why they don't just leave the neighborhood. And this one gives us a very solid and real world explanation as to why these people can't leave the island. Uh, another thing I loved about this movie, American filmmakers, please take note. Why is it that foreign filmmakers can make a horror film with no hateable characters in it? Literally everyone in this movie is likable in some way. You know, there's no asshole, there's no douche, there's no slut. You know, it doesn't have the horror hierarchy that was talked about in Cabin in the Woods, you know. So literally everyone here is likable. You want all of them to survive this situation. You don't want to see anyone go down. And, you know, when it does actually happen, you feel something because you actually like these people. Um, you know, they have no reason to be hated. You know, e even even the, uh, our mastermind on the YouTube team wasn't like an asshole, like, you know, forcing his team to go. I mean, he was still a very nice, likable guy who had the love and admiration of everybody on his team. So they just inherently listened to him anytime they, you know, he gave him an order or whatever. So, again, likable characters, likable situations. And then the story. This story is so fucking spectacular. I love that they associate uh, the Ashvan gods, you know, Ash, uh, uh, what was it, Ashvani and Ashvina, um, twin goddesses, uh, which, you know, we'll get into more in the uh, in the walkthrough. But, yeah, there, like I said, folks, there's just so much to like. Performances, the editing is beautiful, the, the sound design, uh, the set design, this house is gorgeous, like, they explain it as, you know, this mansion has been abandoned, but they don't really tell you how long. Uh, so when you get in there and you see that everything is clean and nothing is really disheveled, it's a little bit of a shock to the system at first. But then as the movie goes along, you start to realize that the horror of this house isn't in its look. It's in its curse, and it just makes the movie just that much more likable. My friends, I have next to nothing negative to say about this movie. In fact, as I sit here trying to find something negative, I can't. 
You know, I can't, there's no weapon droppers in this movie. There's no skeptics. There's no, um, like I said earlier, unlikable characters. I mean, this, this damn movie is, I don't know if it's my number one of the year. It might be. Um, as of right now, it's solidly in my top three. But, uh, you know, at the end of the year, I'll do all my rewatches of my top 15 or 20 movies, and you know, I'll be able to kind of give a better idea of where this is going to fall. But, yeah, as of right now, it's right up there at the top with, you know, stuff like Brooklyn 45 and Knock at the Cabin. So, yeah, I'll leave my general thoughts at that. I absolutely loved every second of this film, and despite it being almost two hours, it kind of flew by for me, you know? I wasn't looking at my phone. I wasn't looking at my tablet. I was completely riveted by the film, and it's an absolute triumph for me. Um, it does. I will say that it gets slightly convoluted in the third act. It starts to get maybe confusing on that first watch, but by the time we get to the end of the film, everything comes together nicely, and everything kind of makes sense, um, You know, assuming you have that suspension of disbelief. But, yeah. Like I said, friends, absolutely love this one. So I'm going to leave my general thoughts at that for now. All right. For some reason, Skype wanted to sneak behind all my other programs, so it took me a minute to unmute. But uh, we'll kick it to Don for uh, his general thoughts. Don, what do you think of Ashton? Yeah, I'm really close. Um, not top five material like Venom is, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely right there with him. Um, I also do want to say, uh, it, it uh, as a goof, I didn't recognize this until later on, but I had actually seen the short film that this was based on years ago. Um, it was in a short block that I saw for a festival. Um, it, I, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look. Cause I remember looking it up when I saw it. And that when I, I saw the the credit, and then I looked back, and I re- remembered why, and then I it just slipped my mind. I wish I would um, remember why where I saw it, but um, yeah, I, I remember seeing the short that this was based on, and it's pretty similar. It's just basically the uh, the people investigating the house and finding the curse, and then being haunted by that. So it's a condensed version, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. I think the folklore to this is my favorite part of this because I, I think the idea of what goes on here, uh, the curse, how the house is haunted, all of the uh, various little nuances that come about there. Um, yeah, you could probably get a little convoluted, but I, I, I really enjoy the folklore. Uh, the, the native touch, you know, not being, you know, to, native to that part of India. I, I looked it up. I think it's Telugu, which is... Uh, I, I think like southern India. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's not like you know Bollywood, Bombay kind of a thing. It's more uh, southern, um, south central uh, ish. But uh, again, I'm not very familiar on the various uh, locales in India. So yeah, um, injecting that is a very uh, nice touch. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the atmosphere in the house is fantastic. I, I, you know, the detail about it being abandoned, but then you look at it and this could have looked like it was uh, lived in maybe a week ago or maybe a little bit um, more than that. But it, yeah, the, the house is fantastic. The curse, uh, the integration with that is um, fantastic. I, I love the idea of the uh, group being there to document it. I mean, you know, it's a familiar trope. We've seen it dozens of times. Gone job, grave encounters, uh, you know, uh, 
how many, you know, I mean, Bloody Mary versus Ghost Killers. I mean, you know, we've all seen this kind of setup, but I, I really like the idea of, you know, India finally having one because I don't recall any other ones from there. Maybe there's another one or two, but um, yeah, the, not necessarily one that I, I really can think of off the top of my head. But yeah, I, I really enjoy it. The convoluted nature of it does kind of stick out a little. Um, 150 is another really nagging part, but I mean, these aren't really huge um, nitpicks. These are just, you know, small little factors. But yeah, overall, I'm right there with you. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, top 10, top 10 potentially, uh, depending on what we get, you know, in these final few months. But uh, where we stand right now, uh, definitely top 10 of the year. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely right there with you on that. Uh, definitely, definitely enjoyed this one quite a bit. Quite a bit. All right. So, to me, uh, I will not be a dissenting voice this time. I actually pretty much agree with everything said. I, I thought the score was really good. I thought the score did a good job kind of leading the viewer um, and it wasn't always just like jump scare based score, just in general. Um, it helped uh, with the tense moments. It helped build atmosphere. Let me tell you that oh, the cold open, which was actually, I, I clocked it because w I, at one point I was like, did I miss like opening credits and title? Because it was a good, I think, 20 ish minutes. That cold opening yeah. was probably the best I've seen in like a while. Um, that, that almost. Yep. You could have almost based a movie just off what happened in that cold opening. Um, in fact, like I was like so impressed with it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is like, is this about to be like an amazing movie?" <laughs> just based off most that. of the sh most um, of the short because, I Mike, most of the short I mentioned is re replicated in the cold open. That's most of the short. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because like this is one of those uh, picks for the show that like I didn't. No, I didn't have a lot of background or know much going into it. I just, I, w when we were looking for picks, I was scrolling through Netflix and um, I know it's on in settings, but if you kind of land on a movie, sometimes it'll autoplay like a scene. So like, I was like, oh, this kind of looks interesting, but I don't believe what it autoplayed was part of the opening. So I wasn't even prepared for like a found footage style like opening, but Man, that was really, really good. So right off the bat, I was like, okay, let's let's see what we got here. Um, I, I agree about the characters; they're all pretty much likable. Like there's there's nothing like outrageous about any of them, right? They just come off as like normal people. Um, what else? Uh, I I was in, very interested in localizing the the lore, the curse, all that stuff. As as Venom mentioned. Um, I, again, like the only nitpick for me is kind of like what you guys already said. I would say like towards the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, there is a part where you could say uh, maybe it stagnated a little bit. Uh, maybe some like a lot of exposition to kind of set up the finale. But really, I mean, I wasn't too bothered by it. Um, sure, like if we really took a careful scalpel to it, could you cut like maybe five, ten minutes off just to make it a little tighter? For that, like, last 45 minutes, sure. But it's not enough to, like, make me uh, second-guess the movie. And the finale, I thought, was really good. Um, I liked where we ended up by the end of the movie. Overall, like, this, as it stands now, this is definitely on my top ten list. 
Uh, we obviously have still a handful of months left in the year. But, uh, yeah, in a year like 2023, especially with some of the luck we've, with what we've had, start seeking out VOD choices, this was like a refreshing bright spot to say, holy shit, like, I didn't have to go to the theater. Well, I would have been happy to go to the theater for this, but at the same time, it's like, wow, I was able to just kind of find this at home and and, and enjoy it that much. So looks like it's it's positive all around on this one. So, uh, yeah, I'll kick it back to you, Venom. When I first popped the movie in, I was actually a little worried. I don't know if you guys noticed, but right before, like before any of the movie starts, there's an animal disclaimer talking about, you know, no animals or birds were harmed in the making of this movie. And I'm like, oh, shit. You usually only see that at the beginning of the movie if there's going to be a lot of animal violence. But no, this one actually doesn't really have any animal violence at all. There's like, there's one dead bird sitting in a chair and... I guess the filmmakers just felt the need to put that disclaimer at the beginning because of the one bird, just to say, hey, we didn't kill that bird, we swear. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, this movie, there's so, so much to like about the movie. I really liked how the ending sequence of the movie felt like the original Saw. I don't know if you guys know what I mean, but like, you know, getting like the, the montage of clips of things that happened earlier in the film, things that happened before the film started, you know, like seeing, you know, our main guy propose to his wife, you know, things like that with, you know, the cool ass music playing in the background and then all the realizations kind of, you know, swimming or, you know, flooding, I should say, into our our hero's brain and what he must do to end this curse. And yeah, it just it just comes together so nicely. So I did appreciate that a lot. Um <laughs> the movie actually has uh, what's up go ahead Mike. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say another element that I kind of appreciated was we mentioned like kind of like the lore and how they're explaining the curse and all the backstory to that. A nice little touch and I don't even know if it was on purpose, it could just be the the efficient way they set everything up. Sometimes in in movies you can you can kind of get lost in the lore if you're not familiar with like the cultural aspects, but Something this movie did well, and like I said, it could be completely coincidence, but they almost set it up to where, like, even if you get lost in some of it and you don't 100% follow, like, the backstory and how everything came to be, they almost gave the viewer an out to say, okay, just just pay attention to the little uh, gold statue idols, because that's, like, the main crux of it, right? Like, uh, there's this power with them. And uh, if if they're separated or one of them can be used for this. So basically, like, even if, if all the other stuff goes over your head, it, as long as you just kind of pay attention to that aspect of it, you're going to get plenty enough to follow along, like, what the actual action on screen is doing and what, what it all means. So I thought that was, like, if they did that on purpose to to kind of, like, give, like, a almost like a shorthand version very clever. If it was just a coincidence, well, take you know other movie or other writers take notes on how to do that. Just just as almost like a backup, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see. Another thing I really liked about this movie, um, which goes back to the filmmaking, is the use of the cross on the sandbar on the way to the island. Um, while they're on the sandbar walking to the island, there's this big cross, you know, a big old crucifix on the road. 
um, you can see as our, you know, as our cast kind of walks by it, you can see that it's taller than anybody, you know, any of the people. And then as the tide starts rising, the filmmaker keeps going back to that cross and showing it deeper and deeper and deeper until finally you can't see it at all. It's completely covered by ocean water. And something about that just really, really worked for me with the score also, you know, playing over it, giving you that sense of early dread. And obviously at this point, you've already gone through the cold open, which is pretty fucking intense. So, you know, just ah, that that worked for me. This movie literally rips off one of the greatest jump scares in cinematic history. And that is, of course, the uh, the Exorcist 3 jump scare. But it's done so well in this movie that it doesn't come off as a ripoff. Like, it's not like it, yes, when you see it, it kind of reminds you of that particular jump scare. But the fact that in The Exorcist, um, the antagonist that creates the jump scare comes out of a room. Whereas in this one, we're already in a big room. The camera shows that our character is by herself, but then the camera pans, she walks away, and then we see the antagonist go by the hallway. And it's just so fucking effective. I loved it. Probably my favorite jump scare in the movie. And, you know, considering I just said that The Exorcist 3 jump scare is probably one of the greatest ever, I'm sure you know how I feel about The Exorcist 3. So, of course, that kind of made me happy. Um, I love that this movie just does not fuck around. Like, this movie gets right into the action, both with the cold open and then... Because we haven't actually said yet that the cold open actually occurs a few hours before the bulk of the movie. We actually see, like, a good chunk of the third act, but we see it out of context. We don't know who the characters are yet at this point. We don't know what they're doing there. I mean, it's pretty obvious they're doing a paranormal investigation, but, you know, we don't we don't know anything about the, the history of the house yet. Nothing during the cold open. It's just totally out of context. But then once the movie actually kicks in, there's no waiting for the horror, my friends. As soon as they get into the house and the sun goes down, shit starts to hit the fan, and I fucking loved it. There's just no waiting um, and, you know, movies that don't make you wait for the horror are okay in my book, let me tell you. So, yeah, absolutely appreciated that. But wall-to-wall scares in this movie. I mean, yeah, it is a haunted house film slash a cursed film. So there's going to be scenes of characters kind of walking around in the darkness, you know, creeping around, investigating noises and things like that. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of that. Anybody who's ever watched a paranormal investigation television show knows about three quarters of the show is just people walking around in the dark, hoping to catch something on camera or on an audio recorder of some kind or whatever. So, yeah, once you kind of realize that this is, kind of a paranormal investigative horror film, just realize that you're going to get some of that. But even aside from that, I thought the pacing on this was great. Um, You know, like I said, we get the long-ass cold open, which really sets us up for the horror about to come. And then, you know, we get it at a slower pace once we actually experience it in real time. And then the fact that, you know, the cold open kind of ends before the action, before the movie ends. In other words, once we get to the action of the cold open and once that once we get to the very end of what was the cold open, there's still a good 10, 15 minutes of movie left. So we get, you know, more story, the culmination of, 
you know, um, this guy's adventure with the curse or his experience with this curse, blah, blah, blah. You know, finding out who he is was kind of a cool little experience because we all kind of find out at the same time. Maybe some savvy viewers will pick it out early. I did not. Uh, pretty much when the character found out, figured out who he was, that's when I figured out who he was. Like, oh, that makes total sense now. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Which, you know, again, kind of um, just adds a, a, a greater sense of peril to the ending. So, yeah, absolutely loved it. I loved all the demonic stuff in the movie. Um, you know, the black eyes. It, it, the black eyes thing maybe did start to get a little silly during the one scene where the demon was constantly flipping between the black eyes and normal eyes. Like, towards the end of that scene, I'm like, okay, stop. We've had enough. And they did. It's like they knew exactly where to stop with this effect. So, um, but the but the scene before that one where we see the demon, and then we see the person that the demon is possessing, and they both tilt their head at the exact same time. I'm sorry, that shit was fucking terrifying. And they both had this shitty and grin on their face. Oh, very much like the sadness, just this big giant toothy grin, um, which you know obviously again adds more sense of. Uh, danger to this whole thing but yeah like I said I can talk about the positives of this movie for hours I just loved so much about it I'm just trying to look through my notes I didn't even really take that many notes and that says something because um, I've always said that when I don't take that many notes that means the movie was really good that means the, that means the movie had me so captivated that I didn't even want to look down to my notebook to write down notes and yes I handwrite my notes shut up I'm old <laughs> But, uh, yeah. So, um, oh, and then, and then we get kind of this cool reveal about halfway through the movie of what happened to some members of this guy's paranormal team. And even that scene, how it's done and how he's, like, smiling as he's doing the things that he's doing, just, again, worked so well for me. I, I literally had to rewind that scene. Cause, just because of how big his eyes were, you know, how wide open his eyes were and that big smile on his face, which it creeped the shit out of me, but I couldn't get enough of it either. So, yeah, again, kudos to these filmmakers. Um, let's see. I um, Well, I think I already mentioned that, that I kind of like how this movie does both haunting and possession. It's not just a demonic possession movie, and it's not just a haunted house movie. We get a nice combination of the two, and I think it's a perfect balance. Um, I mean, we, we've been calling this a haunted house movie, and yes, the house is haunted, but the house is haunted because of an item that was brought to the house. Um, and, and then what happened at the house after that item was brought to the house. So um, it, it, it's, it's more of a curse than a haunted house movie, but I'm still going to allow it because they're in a house and it's very obviously haunted. So I'm cool with it. Um, but, yeah, the fact that they were able to balance haunting and possession together, again, stellar work. Uh, the use of lighting in this movie and the colored lighting specifically very cool. Uh, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not going to bring up Suspiria by any stretch. Um, well, cause most of the lighting that's utilized in this is green instead of red. And what that, you know, you don't understand 
the context of the green lighting the first couple of times you see it. It's obvious as a viewer, you're like, why did what happened here? Why did the light go from blue to green for no reason? And then suddenly go back to the normal, you know, the, the shades of blue of, of nighttime on film. And then about halfway through the film, we get that reveal, too, of why the lighting is going to green. And to me, it's so fucking satisfying. It, it has elements of insidious, um, the good elements of insidious, not the shitty ones. <laughs> uh, so, again, you know, this movie borrows from a lot of American horror films. And I'm OK with that because they come off as loving homages in this. They don't come off as ripoffs or lazy filmmaking or anything like that. So I'm right on board for that. Um, there is kind of a question. The, the movie leaves you with a question at the end, maybe not for all viewers, but for one character in particular, um, she kind of just disappears and we don't really know what, I mean, we know what happened to her in life, but as far as what happened to her in the house after, you know, our hero figured out what he had to do, she just kind of disappears. But, you know, we'll talk about that during the walkthrough. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I, again, I can't say enough good things about this movie. Amazing score, cinematography, editing, beautiful editing. Um, just some beautiful shots at sunset. You know, when the sun is going down, when they first get to the house, there's some amazing shots in there. Um, like I said, the, the color theory in this film is all done really, really well. And this movie is not bloody, by the way. It's not a bloody, gory movie by any stretch of the imagination. And ultimately, I don't think it needed it. I was, you know, there, there's, we've reviewed plenty of movies here where either Don or myself will make the comment that the movie could have used a little bit more gore. In my opinion, this is not one of those examples. This movie had exactly what it needed to. And, and then, you know, we get that emotional punch at the end with one of our characters. Um, it, yeah, it just, <laughs> God damn, this fucking movie. This might be my number one now. God damn it. It's just sitting here talking about it is reminding me just everything that I loved about it. And I just watched the movie earlier today um, dur <laughs> during my lunch hour of all things. But, uh, yeah, wow, this goddamn movie. All right, guys, anything else you want to add before we get into uh, what's going to be a very – uh, sporadic, is that the word I'm looking for, um, walkthrough? Because I'm not going to remember everything that happens in this movie. As much as I love this movie, I did only watch it once, unfortunately. I will definitely watch it multiple times before the, the, the end of the year, but uh, I'm going to do my best with this walkthrough. But like I said, guys, anything else you want to add before we get into it? Uh, I, I think I didn't mention the... Uh... The cinematography, it, it was a really good-looking movie, yeah, like you mentioned, with like the color scheme. I like the way that was used in the house. Um, and I think that, that might be it. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have so few yeah. notes written down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we covered a lot in our general thoughts anyway, yeah. but... Um, uh, yeah, I think that might be it. I mean... I. I just really liked it, <laughs> but I only watched it once too. So of course, there's like with a two-hour movie, there's like always going to be some things I forget from a one-time watch. But sure. um, I highly recommend it. Netflix. I mean, I, I would still say it's probably the streaming service. If people have once, the one most people would have. But um, yeah. definitely check it out on there uh, because uh, it kind of just released in the 
to like little fanfare, right? I, it wasn't a movie I remember or, or anyone talking about ahead of time. Haven't really heard anyone talk about it since we've seen it, even though it's only been recent since we saw it. But um, I'm interested what more people think. I just don't think a lot of people have seen it yet. So hopefully it'll get around a little bit more because I think it definitely deserves to be on people's watch list for this year, especially in like a year that I'd say has been middle of the road so far. We need more stuff like this being watched. Absolutely. Yeah, we really, really do. All right, folks. So that is going to be your spoiler warning. If you haven't watched Ashton's yet, uh, I we all highly recommend that you do before we get into our walkthrough. If foreign horror is not for you, and yes, you will be reading subtitles, unfortunately, for some of you, but uh, that, that's never a problem for me. So, again, if you've either already watched the movie or don't care to, go ahead and join us for the walkthrough. So... Our movie opens up with an animated sequence of all things. We kind of get two cold opens, kind of. Uh, we, we get like a really quick animated sequence that kind of goes over the legend of, you know, basically what's going on in this film. Uh, so we're told that um, a long time ago there was a farmer and he had twin sons. He had two sons, twins, and one day they were playing near water, near like a lake or a pond or whatever, and they both unfortunately drowned and they both died. Uh, the father was very distraught, and he started to pray to the Ashvins. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, they are two uh, goddesses who are, they're rewarding goddesses. Um, they basically will reward people for, you know, being good people, worshiping them properly, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the father, distraught from his loss, uh, prays to these two goddesses, and they actually appear to him. They actually just appear right in front of him and let him know, you know, uh, unfortunately we can't give you both of your sons back, but we can give one of them back to you. Um, the father says, okay. Uh, the uh, The goddesses give him back one of his sons. But what they also give is they give the son these two idols. They look like uh, kind of standing horses um, holding weapons and shields. And basically uh, the goddesses tell the boy that as long as you have these two idols, and they're two separate idols, they're two statues, um, as, as long as the boy uh, is in possession of both statues, he can never die. Only, you know, he can only die of natural causes. So basically, he's invincible until his body dies of natural causes. Um, but after the boy comes back, to, you know, from uh, you know from the spirit world, he finds it very difficult to live without his brother because they were twins. They did everything together, and. You know, you could imagine what it would be like for a twin to, to, to lose their twin and basically lose a part of themselves, if you will. Um, so the kid basically, you know, is distraught. You know, yes, he's alive, but he's not exactly happy. So what ends up happening is a demon kind of overhears this whole situation. This demon is a shapeshifter, and he uh, basically sh uh, shapeshifts into a person, like one of the villagers. And he makes a deal with the boy. He tells the boy, if you, if you give me one of those idols, I will get your brother back from the afterworld. And, of course, you know, the boy being so distraught instantly says yes. Uh, he gives the demon the idol. 
And then what the demon does is rather than give the brother back, we, we get like a little bit of a changeling thing going where the demon ends up resurrecting one of his demons, you know, one of the people um, that kind of, you know, works and fights for him. And then that demon shapeshifts into the image of the other brother. The demon then takes the idol and apparently with the idol, he is able to open a passageway to a spirit world, if you will, a demon world, spirit world. I think at one point they call it almost like an intermediary world, you know, basically between the living and the dead. And basically after a certain amount of time, like however many weeks, months, years, eventually the demon will be able to open the portal so far that his entire army will be able to come up to earth and take over basically giving the demon what he wants. He wants to take possession of the earth, you know, kind of like Satan, um, at least in the Bible anyway. And, uh, and that's pretty much that. Now, eventually um, the, the village that the, that the twin boys live in uh, starts to, you know, a calamity starts to occur, uh, diseases, livestock starts dying, crops stop growing, um, you know, villagers are, you know, getting like diseases and dying and everything. Eventually, um, the villagers, through some sort of magic ritual, figure out that the other boy isn't actually the brother. It's actually a demon. Uh, they're able to perform some kind of incantation. The demon then shows itself in its true form. And they get the idol back from him, sending the demon back to his realm. Now, uh, the holy, the elders of this village, uh, they end up, they realize that these two idols can never be separated. Because as long as they're separated, um, you know, A, this boy is in danger of dying, and B, uh, this demon, who is never really named, um, to my knowledge, I don't think they ever actually give this demon a name, they just call it the demon throughout the film. Um, as long, like I said, as long as they keep these two idols together, uh, the demon won't be able to get get it back, and it won't be able to open the portal. So uh, the elders of this village take the two idols, and they tie it together with holy string. That's what they say in the movie, folks. I don't know what holy string is, but there you go. They end up tying the two idols together, putting them in a cement block, and then burying them in a temple somewhere where hopefully no one will ever find them. Woo! Now that was just that was the first part of the cold open. That's just the animated part. Now we actually get to a cold open where we find a paranormal investigative team uh, basically doing their thing in a house. Um, like I said, the house. The funny thing is, is that during the cold open, they're in a part of the house that actually does look decrepit because they're up in the attic, um, and they're in a part of the house where rituals had taken place not that you know this at this point in the film at this point in the film like i said we're watching these people out of context investigating this house it looks decrepit because of the part of the house that the particular cameraman is in and we basically just see the team start getting picked off one by one like they start disappearing um you know one guy is in the attic he ends up getting attacked by what looks like some sort of female spirit um, and then all the other members of the paranormal team kind of have the same experience with the same female spirit kind of, um, you know, antagonizing them and then eventually taking them as in killing them. Um, we 
after a while, all the members of the team are gone except for the main guy, whose name I forgot already. And for some reason, IMDb doesn't want to give me character names for this movie, just the actors' names. And I, I forgot most of their names, so please forgive me on that one. But basically, our the our, our main guy, if, if you will, the lead, the leader of the team, he's the last one left alive. And he starts getting antagonized by this spirit, uh, starts getting chased throughout the house, um, eventually gets out of the house and starts to run away. And, but then the spirit follows him outside. And the last thing that we see as part of the cold open is the director kind of start to go near the person. And basically we see that, that the director gets attacked and he falls in water. And then the cold open ends, and that's the end of the cold open. So then after that, we get our opening credits and our title card, and then the movie. Um, when we get back to the movie, it's actually the day before um, the events of the cold open took place. And that's when we're introduced to our team officially. Um, like I said, I forgot their names. I think uh, Tarun was the name of the director. His wife is named Ritu. Um, and then I can't remember any of the other names, but it's basically, oh, Grace. Grace was the photographer. She was like the female photographer. Of course, the one with the American name, I, I remember. Uh, and then there were two other gentlemen uh, along the way who were brothers, two brothers um, along. So it's a five-person team. We see that they are going to investigate a mansion where a terrible crime occurred uh, not too long ago. Uh, basically, the former owner of the house was a famous archaeologist, like a world-renowned archaeologist, and she ended up killing um, her entire house staff, which is 15 people, and then committing suicide, killing herself. But uh, when the police arrived at the mansion, they saw the woman's body on the ground. You know, it looked like she had committed suicide. And then the police leave the room, they come back in, and the body's gone, and they never find the body. So basically, the owner of the house, the archaeologist who killed, you know, who at this point is perceived to have killed 15 people, uh, basically her body just disappeared. And that's kind of where the lore of this house comes from. So now, um, like I said, our five investigators, uh, they get a ride to the house. Unfortunately, because the house is on an island separated from the mainland by a sandbar, they can't take a car over the sandbar. Obviously, it would get stuck. So they then have to walk, and this kind of goes back to the cross that I was talking about earlier. As they're walking to the house on the sandbar, they do see this cross, this, I don't know, it's probably like seven, eight feet tall cross that they all walk by. And that's the cross that's kind of used later in the film to show the water slowly rising higher and higher until finally the tide is up and the cross is gone. You can't even see it. Um, they end up getting the house. You know, they, they, they do a little bit of talking. It turns out it's Tarun, uh, you know, the director's birthday the next day. His wife tells him that she has a surprise for him that she'll give him the next day. Um, and then basically we go into the house and it's, it's pretty much instant. My friends, as soon as they get in the house, uh, Grace is the first one, the photographer, she's the first one to have an incident. 
And uh, basically we see that everyone, all the members of the team have different incidents throughout the house because, of course, in their infinite wisdom, they decided to split up and go five different directions rather than, you know, small teams or just stay together and investigate this terrifying place, you know, together. They decide to split up, of course, you know, mistake number one. Well, probably coming to the house is mistake number one, but then splitting up, yeah, that's that's a major mistake. So, like I said, they end up splitting up. They go off in their separate ways. We eventually see that um, four – ultimately, all five of them are attacked throughout the house, um, you know, in different scenes here and there. Uh, and, and then suddenly everyone is gone. And the director is basically, Tarun, is there by himself. He's wondering what the hell is going on. Finally, he gets outside and finds the bodies of all of his team. They're still alive, but they're out cold. Like, they're just unconscious on the ground. Like, they still have a heartbeat, but they're, they're pretty much dead. And then at this point is where we get the reveal that it was him, uh, actually Tarun. He was the one who actually killed all of his team uh, we'll find out why in a little bit, obviously, but when we see the scene, the the kind of the montage flashback of him going around taking out all his team members, his eyes are wide open and he's got that big shit-eating grin that I was talking about earlier, so it's very obvious there's something wrong with this guy. Um, also, while they were on the way to the house, um, I forgot to mention that the director did relay a story to his wife about a story that had been told to him about uh, another world, a world between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Not quite a purgatory, if you will, but just kind of a place where demons take, uh, you know, can take recently deceased souls and kind of finish them off. And, you know, and, and the director kind of relays the story or, you know, eventually as the movie goes along, he finds out more and more about that other realm he finds out that if someone dies in the real world and then their spirit goes to that realm, they're not totally dead yet. Like their body is still alive in the real world, but their spirit is in this kind of demon world, if you will. But if they die while in that demon realm, they are permanently dead. They can, you know, their spirit can't return to their body. So uh, basically at one point, about halfway through the film, uh, our director, Tarun, basically finds some vlogs, some videos that were made by the archaeologists who used to live in the house. And he, he watches a series of them, which, you know, takes up a good amount of time of the movie. Um, they're interesting as shit, though, because it basically shows, you know, her talking about her expedition and going to look for an idol that she's heard about. And then we see the scene where she actually finds it. She finds the cement slab that the idols were put in. And we see her and her team taking the cement slab out of the ground. She ends up going back to her house, back home, without her team. Like, her team stays at the dig to kind of clean up and finish up over there. She decides to come home with the slab to do some preliminary investigation. And when she opens the slab, what what do we see? We see the two horse idols that we've seen, and they are still tied together with the holy string that, you know, was mentioned earlier. But then she goes, well, first, 
we, we see something really weird happen. We, we almost see like the air expand from the spot, you know, from her mansion. The, the moment that she opens um, the slab, we see like this cool kind of effect where this like almost like a like an air bomb goes off. You know, you see all the grass kind of get bent over and then come back. And then we see it kind of um, constrict back into the house. So, like, something was released, and then Zhuk went right back into the house. And when she comes out of her um, trance, when the archaeologist comes out of her trance, the idols have been separated, and one of them is missing. It's completely gone. And she realizes that, oh, shit, I was just possessed by that demon. Basically, as soon as she opened that slab and exposed the idols to, um, to the world, the demon instantly, you know, could sense that they were found and that they were opened. So it possessed her to then go ahead and untie the idols so that the demon could then take one of the idols with him and go back to his original plan of opening the portal and trying to get his army of demons up to the earth, blah, 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 blah. Um, so at this point, um, we start getting some kind of cryptic messaging throughout some of these videos and some of the translations from the tablets that she found. And slowly but surely, we start to realize, and Tarun starts to realize, that he is the boy from the legend. Yeah, um, the, the mythology talked about earlier with the farmer and the two dead twin boys. Tarun is the twin who lived. He is the boy, and he realizes that as long as those um, idols exist, he can't be killed. You, rem remember, he, he was granted protection by the Ashvins, basically saying as long as these statues exist, you can only die of natural causes. You can never be killed. Um, he realizes that he can't be killed, so he starts to realize that his friends, who are all lifeless outside, aren't actually dead. Their spirits are trapped in that other intermediary world, uh, the demon realm, if you will. And he basically is hearing the voice of, of Artie. I'm sorry, Artie was the name of the archaeologist, the female archaeologist. Uh, Artie spelled uh, A-E-T-H-A-R-I, but still pronounced Artie. So, um, so anyway, <laughs> he realized, he basically... Um, by listening to basically Artie's spirit is talking to him at this point. Um, she's no longer attacking him. I think she re I think she figured out that he was the boy in the legend at the same time that he did or something. Um, or maybe she figured it out in her notes. I don't know how the hell would she know that he would end up at that house one day? Uh, you know, again, suspension of disbelief, but um, yeah. So basically the voice of Artie tells Tarun you need to go to the demon world. You need to go into the demon world and you need to go and get the other idol, reunite the two idols and end the curse. And, you know, he doesn't understand why until he makes the realization that, yes, I am the boy in the legend. And with that realization, he also realizes, oh, shit, I can't die, can I? So what he does is he basically takes saran wrap, wraps it completely around his head multiple times so that he can't breathe. Then he takes some zip ties and he zip ties himself to the radiator. There's like an old timey radiator there on the ground. 
So he zip ties himself to that while his head is completely encased in saran wrap. We see him slowly lose his breath and die. But then he wakes up in the demon world. And that's when we realize what the green lighting was. Because as soon as he wakes up in the demon world, um, I forgot to mention that throughout the film, some of the scenes would switch from the traditional blue nighttime lighting to green lighting for no reason. Like I said, completely out of context. Um, this is where we figure out that, oh, when the lighting is green, they're not in the real world. They're in the demon world. And, you know, that's why everything is kind of different. Like the people look different, too. Like sometimes when we see their spirit in the spirit world, they've got like injuries. Like one of them is bleeding from the forehead. But then when we see their body in real life, they're not actually bleeding. Um, so obviously that's an injury, an injury that he got, you know, in the demon world. Um, but basically, Tarun goes to the demon world. He finds all of his friends. He, he finds out that they're still alive in the demon world, but they're all basically being possessed still by the original demon. Uh, we basically see um, the brothers. We see the big brother, and, you know, like I said, we, we get that traditional, the blackening of the eyes. Once the eyes go black, you know, he's possessed by something demonic. And unfortunately, the older brother ends up killing uh, the younger brother in the demon world, ends up stabbing him multiple times with a cool-ass knife that we see throughout the film. I don't know what that thing is called. I'm sure it has a name, but it's a badass fucking... It looks like, it looks like something that like a third-world country for, would use for like cutting grass or, you know, uh, you know uh, gathering crops, stuff like that. Um, so... Like I said, yeah, the older brother ends up killing the younger brother, and instantly we realize, oh, shit, he just got killed in the demon world, so he's gone forever. And like I said, we feel bad, because like I said, we like all of these characters. They're all likable. We don't want to see any of them really get dispatched, but unfortunately, uh, the younger brother does indeed get dispatched. Um, eventually, Tarun does... Um, figure out where the second statue is. And uh, if you guys remember the end of the cold open, when Tarun kind of met the uh, arty, arty spirit outside and it seemed like he was attacked and then we see the camera fall into the water and then the scene ended. What that actually was, was Tarun asking Artie, where is the idol? Like they're in the demon world and, you know, the spirit of Artie told him that he needs to go to the spirit world, find the idol, and reunite him. So he's basically begging Artie, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? But the demon is still possessing Artie. The, the demon is still possessing Artie's, like, soul. I don't know if that's actually her body that went missing that he's possessing in the real world. That's probably what's going on. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, Tarun realizes that the demon is still possessing people, including Tarun himself. Um, and this is in the demon world. And what we see is we see the demon possess Tarun and control his body to make him break his own neck. We see him, you know, put his hand, put one of his hands over on top of his head, one at his chin, and then he does the twist. He breaks his own neck or is possessed to break his own neck, but he comes to in the real world. But don't forget, in the real world, he's zip tied to a radiator and has saran wrap on his face. So he just instantly dies again. 
uh, and, and he goes right back to the demon world. We go through this cycle like two, three, four times where the demon keeps killing uh, Tarun, and then, you know, he comes back to the real world, he's got the saran wrap on his face, and he just dies again. Eventually, Tarun makes the realization that if you and I are connected through these idols and you can possess me, that means that I can possess you. Don't ask me where that logic came from. I wouldn't have thought of that myself in that situation, but again, that's what they're giving us in the movie. So Tarun realizes that he can actually possess the demon, and that's exactly what we see. We actually see Tarun possess the demon and make the demon fall to his knees in the demon world and kind of keeps him there. While Artie then shows him where uh, the other idol is. And like I mentioned at the end of the cold open, we see the camera fall into the water. That wasn't Artie's spirit attacking the director. That was Artie's spirit pushing him into the water to show him where the idol is. And once the director falls down to the bottom, don't forget, this is the demon world. So I guess he doesn't have to breathe because he's underwater for a long time. It would make sense. I mean, it's not the living world. But, uh, yeah, while he's down in the water, he ends up sinking down to the bottom, and he sees the idol just standing on a rock. It's just sitting on a rock formation at the bottom of whatever, you know, lake or pond or whatever this is, or, or the ocean itself that he's at the bottom of. He takes the idol. He, uh, he ends up going back um, to the demon world where he's got the demon held. He puts both idols in front of the demon along with a piece of the cloth that the demon, the demon's basically wearing like tattered clothes, like just black kind of, kind of robes, but they're all tattered and shitty. Uh, Tarun actually takes a piece of the robe, places it in front of the demon who's still under his control along with both idols. Instead of Tarun putting the idols back together himself, he possesses the fucking demon to do it, which I fucking love. I absolutely love that. He basically possesses the demon, makes the demon put the idols back together, and then take the cloth and wrap it around the idols. As soon as he does that, he, of course, disappears in an explosion of light. And we see then instantly uh, the rest of the paranormal team wake up in the real world, and it's the next morning. Unfortunately, they all wake up except for the little brother who, as I mentioned, uh, the big brother, you know, the big brother who was possessed by the demon killed him in the demon world. Big brother has no memory of this, has no idea that he's the one who actually killed him. So he's there mourning his little brother. You know, there's a big emotional scene. Then we see Ritu, who is uh, Tarun's wife, the director's wife. She runs into the house because she sees that everybody's there except for him. And she also sees that the younger kid is dead. So she's worried about her husband. She runs into the house. She finds her husband's body still zip-tied to, um, to the radiator with the saran wrap around his face. She slowly unwraps all the saran wrap from his face, releases the zip ties so that he's free. Um, but unfortunately, at this exact moment, he's in the demon world just kind of staring at the idols, you know, that have been tied back together. And then oh, we get the reveal that for him to end this curse, he has to take his own life in the demon world while in possession of the idols. So basically, he basically says that, I, 
that no matter what, as long as these idols exist, the demon is going to keep trying to come back to separate them and then try to move forward with his plan again. That's when he uh, remembers that little piece of the translated script on the wall at Artie's mansion that basically says the boy must end his life to end the curse. So what we see is um, Tarun in, in the demon world kind of just staring at the idols while his wife is holding his dead body in the real world. Now, this is, this is the part that kind of gets me, the, the little bit of ambiguity here. Uh, basically, the camera starts to zoom in on Tarun's, uh, on his face, uh, his dead body in the real world. And obviously, as longtime movie watchers, we're expecting his eyes to open. We figure, okay, he's not going to take his life. He's going to go back and be with his wife, who, oh, by the way, is pregnant. And that was the surprise that he was going to get for his birthday, was she was going to tell him that he was going to be a father. He ended up finding out um, by finding a pregnancy test, a positive pregnancy test with a little uh, like present ribbon wrapped around it like a bow. Um, and this is after his wife has already been killed the first time in the real world. Um, so, yeah, anyway, the point is, is that uh, she's crying. She's holding his body. The camera slowly is zooming in towards his face. And then instead of his eyes opening, the camera goes black, and then we hear, like, Tarun take a breath, almost like he woke up, like a, <gasps> like a gasp, a gasping breath. And that's it, folks. That's the end of our movie. And I fucking loved it. <laughs> you got it? Yeah, you just, you just going through it makes me want to watch it again. like to right? <laughs> to pick up on everything and look for the little nuances that I forgot or, you know. Yeah. That got past me on a first watch. Absolutely, yeah. This is this is one that you can watch over and over again. Even though, you know, you know the story, you know the culmination, you know how it ends. It's still just such a fun ride. I mean, I could watch the animated sequence multiple times. I mean, I say animated. It's it's really more like still shots. But you know, I'm I'm gonna say animated regardless. Um, and then right into that cold open, that spectacular cold open. Easily the best cold open of the year I've seen so far. Um, not that very many really stick to my stick in my memory right now, but yeah, easily the best one I think I've seen this year. What else, boys? Uh, nothing much. I mean, I would say if there's if someone's you know hesitant with foreign horror, or they're looking to get into it. Uh, check this one out. It, it'll probably surprise you because. Like we all said, it's it's a pretty good, solid flick. So especially if you like, yeah. you know, Haunted House mixed with uh, Supernatural, mixed with a little found footage. Like it, it touches on a lot of different yeah. elements throughout the running time. So I think it's uh, going to appeal to a lot of horror fans. Absolutely. There's slasher elements in here with, you know, seeing people walking around with big knives in their hands. Um, obviously the haunted house, the paranormal, the d demonic possession. Yeah. Fucking so good. So damn good. <laughs> Agreed. Um, all right. Well, we've, uh, lifted the curse <laughs> and ah! the, uh, <laughs> that brings us probably to the end of this discussion and episode, but, 
let's find out where else we can be found and heard. So, Venom, you're up first. What do you got? Uh, not much new from the last time we recorded. Um, Creature Comforts episode 18 is still the latest episode where we looked at the Thai creature feature, The Lake. Um, let's see, the main show episode, what, 55, I believe? Did that, yeah, that, did that come out? Uh, well, 54. And yes, it, it was posted uh, yesterday, okay, cool. actually. Oh, nice. Good timing. So, yeah, there you go. No More Room in Hell, episode 54, is now available where we looked at uh, what? Derek's picks, right? That was uh, the Manitou. Man- yeah. Yep. And the Manitou and the Incubus. Good time. Good, good fun. Oh, by the way, I, I'll relay this story on the next main show as well because it'll make more sense there. But I did talk to Joe Guy, uh, the guy who plays the Manitou that, you know, I told you guys that I play poker with him. I let him know that we mm. reviewed the movie, and he was so happy. Um, he says he's so upset that that movie didn't get more popular, you know, considering it had Tony Curtis and Burgess Meredith and, you know, some big names in it, um, a, a decent budget, a decent-sized budget, according to him. Yeah, he was always so sad that it didn't become something more. But, yeah, he was very excited that we reviewed it, and he'll be listening to the episode, so that'll, that's fun. All right, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, let me, yeah, let me, if next time you run into him, if he's heard it, let, let me know what he has to say. Yeah, I see him. I see him once a month at the uh, at the poker game, the one poker game that I go to, the expensive one in Burbank. So yeah, next time I see him, I'll let him know. Um, so yeah, what else? Uh, that's the main show. Like I said, Creature Comforts episode eighteen. Nothing new on the Crystal Lake front, though. Uh, I'm sure. I think we're gonna get together soon because. Um, with the dead of the summer here, I don't play as much poker because a lot of the poker games that I play at are outdoors or in garages. So usually in the dog days of summer, they'll kind of put the games on hold for a little bit. So I'll have a little bit more free time moving forward. So yeah, that'll be good. Uh, I think that's it, right? I don't think I have anything else. Oh, my guest spot on... On uh, what the Joe Blow Horror Show, which uh, I I think episode one of that series has been released. Um, I'm on episode two where we looked at Resident Evil Apocalypse. Uh, Mike, I know, was on another one that I'm sure he'll talk about here in a little bit. So um, look for that very soon. Since I know episode one came out last week, I would imagine episode two maybe will be this week or next week. Um, like I said, that's Resident Evil Apocalypse with me, Mr. Venom, on the Joe Blow Horror Show. And that's it for me, folks. All right, Don, what do you got? All right. Uh, yeah, as mentioned, the uh, latest Creature Comforts is available. Uh, I think we know what we're talking about, but I don't think we've ever gotten together to finalize anything more than that. So, yeah, that will probably be uh, sometime next month. Um, one of my uh, episodes with uh, Road to Nowhere is uh, available. That is a uh, triple bill of Lucio Fulci films, which are all first-time watches. Uh, you can find that under Road to Nowhere, um, spelled K-N-O-W-E-R-E. I do have uh, two to two upcoming shows uh, that are not available yet. Uh, one is uh, the long-promised uh, Stu World Order show where I talked about uh, Red 2. And uh, I also joined, uh, or I should say, I'm going to join the Joe Blow Horror Show and I'm going to do Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. So I'm going to uh, close that one out. Um, 
Yeah, we've uh, agreed in principle to do it. That's why um, it's uh, new. We haven't uh, recorded anything yet. We haven't even set a date. But, uh, yeah, we've agreed to uh, finish off the franchise with that one. And uh, the only other thing is the latest uh, horror countdown where we finally did the uh, the inevitable. We did top ten of the 1980s. So mm-hmm. uh really want to get some more folks talking about that because there's some controversial opinions on there and very few have even uh, spoken out about it or contacted me saying what the fuck so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was, that was a fun time but uh, yeah um, that one is available um, but yeah other than that uh, that's pretty much all on my end alright well since it's been mentioned twice keep the Joe Blow Horror Show train going. I recently just recorded my episode or my guest spot uh, on Resident Evil Afterlife, which is the fourth entry in the franchise. I was paired up with Carly. uh, People probably know from Slumber Party Massacre. Um, And other than that, she's like showed up on 22 Shots and with J- her and JP did uh, his and her movie podcast. Both of those, I think, are on a hiatus, but Slumber Party Massacre still comes out monthly. Um, so, yeah, we talked about that entry. Um, I'll keep everyone in, in suspense our, of our thoughts because, I don't know, I feel like this the Resident Evil franchise, it can be polarizing. There's some people that love them all, there's some people that hate them all, and then there's, like, people in between just depending on which entry we're talking about so i'm interested to listen to the other episodes just to see what people think of various uh entries in the franchise um so i think venom you mentioned the first episode is actually out and available now so i'll probably tear into that uh tomorrow during work and i'm not sure if i'm not sure if now they're on a weekly schedule or whatnot but yeah look for those to be releasing um now that the first one's actually out, so that's good. Other than that, yeah, I don't really have much either. Uh, as far as the next episode of Fresh Cuts, no surprise here. It will be A24's Talk to Me, which releases actually today, since we're recording later in the week of this time. Uh, it is Thursday, so yeah, it's technically releases tonight. I'll probably see it uh, this weekend, if not tomorrow, but I'm, I think I'm leaning towards the weekend on this one, so... Looking forward to it. Uh, trying to keep the expectations level, but it is A24 and like the advanced, uh, like not. I, I haven't read any full reviews, but it seems like it's getting pretty positive reaction. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, that could mean nothing. It could mean everything, yeah. or somewhere I, in between. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys know I sang the praises of A24 for years and years, but yeah. I have not been happy with their 2022 and 2023 output thus far. So hopefully Talk to Me will change that around. Because I, I I know I was kind of a man on a lonely island with bodies, bodies, bodies. It seemed like most people liked it. I fucking hated that movie. I hated it with a fucking passion. But, uh, yeah, just go back and listen to the review if you want to hear me get angry about that movie. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I am cautiously optimistic for Talk to Me. Speaking of A24, I'm kind of interested, you know, what's going to happen in the next, like, 6, 8, 12 months because supposedly I read an article where A24 actually agreed to, like, all the striking uh, union terms. So they're like, yeah, come make movies with us because we'll 
will do all the pay and residuals that you guys are requesting. So that actually translates into like all these actors and writers and directors and whoever else like, okay, let's go make A24 movies for like the next <laughs> period of time. It could be interesting for like next year's That's release because obviously – can they actually do that? I thought I thought they had to. If you're in a union, you have to like strike when they strike. Like you'd be a scab or something. Are you saying that people are going to cross the lines to work with a two four? Um, I that's a good question. I'm not I'm not exactly like sure the ins and outs of how SAG and what's the other one? Um, um uh, it, the, the writers like guild. The yeah, writers guild. Wag. The Writers Guild, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about their rules. Like, if, if, like, specific studios are, like, will sign off on all your, like, requests about this stuff, if it's, like, okay, you have the green light to go do it or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. But, the, I mean, the way the article that I read made it, it seemed like that was the case, but who knows? I mean, but then again, it's, like, it's not like A25's unlimited funding that they're suddenly going to increase their output by, like, 500%. You know, they'll... They'll probably still be just limited just because they're a smaller studio than the major ones, but it'll be it'll be interesting because if this does happen, it would probably affect next year anyway, not so much this year because by the time things are done filmed, there yeah. it's, that there won't be time in in 2023. But um, I guess we'll see because if it actually happens, we'll I'm sure we'll start getting like uh, all the movie entertainment blogs reporting on like the movies being made so it'll be something that i guess pay attention to over the next couple of months but anyways yeah a24's talk to me is next other than that thank you everybody for listening to another episode of fresh cuts we will be back shortly with our next episode so until then let's say bye to our listeners later when you find two statues tied together leave them tied together would you yeah usually in horror movies when you discover something that's tied up, it's tied up for a reason, so just go with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>